0: Okay, y'all, let's change gears just a tad. Perhaps most unsettling about each of us. Have you ever thought about this? What's most unsettling about you? What's most unsettling about the the human condition, all of mankind? What could it be? What most unsettles you? Uh, Perhaps it's this radical duality that we have inside of us. Perhaps it's this sense of a deep, Splitness in the core of our being, which that means we have this, this sense of nobility in us and this savagery in us, that we have the capacity within ourselves that we have this Dr. Jekyll and this Mr. Hyde, right? We have a capacity to be both moral and evil at the exact same time. I mean, we can be talking to someone about Jesus, we can be loving our spouses, we can be loving our kids and and genuinely having the desires, having the enablement to do it in one minute and then get in our car and we're driving down the road and we're irate and giving the universal signal in the next. How can that happen? How can we have this deep, deep duality, this splitness in the center of our being? Uh, This past week, I read some transcripts of the Nuremberg trials. Anybody ever done that? frightening. Um, The Nuremberg trials were an international military tribunal established after World War II to judge the Nazi leaders that were associated with the Holocaust, particularly a famous 22 of them for crimes against humanity, for slaughtering, for murdering, for exterminating over 6 million souls. Uh, The most famous were Hermann Göring. Remember him? He was second to Hitler, only in power and influence in all of Nazi Germany. And then there was Rudolf Hess, the third man in the power line. And then another guy named Rudolf Hoes Hess, but it's different from the other one. He was the commandant of the uh, Auschwitz. What struck me about reading these transcripts was the clinical way that they related uh, their answers to the most horrific questions that could be asked to them. It was really, really kind of detached. It'd be kind of like this. Uh, Hess, did you murder two million souls at your facility? Um, yes. And to mark the uh, two millionth soul uh, for dinner, I had a Big Mac, large fries, Diet Coke, and the snow cone. Next question. It was like that. Uh, Eleven of the famous 22 were executed by hanging. Goring, two hours before he was to be hanged, had a cyanide tablet. Who knows how he got it, but he took it. And, uh, and too much of the consternation of the whole world uh, you went that way. Because of the wonder of the internet, uh, I listened to an old tape of an American reporter who was there on the scene while the 11 were hung. And he was given by radio to all the world, the English-speaking world, a play-by-play account of what was happening. Um, you know, I don't remember. Frankel comes up to the, he walks up to the uh, stage and he looks... Uh, composed, it's amazing how he's composed. I don't know how he could be composed, right? And then he comes in and he says what their last words were. And then he would say how long it took for them to finally eventually die from strangulation by hanging. Um, Only one of the 11 was mentioned to have had some kind of recent religious conversion or experience, and when he got up there, his last words were, oh God, have mercy on me. A sinner. The others said no such thing and the others died defiantly in their self-justification, giving some sort of worship and credence to Hitler or the Fuhrer or to Mother Germany, uh, their god, right? Um, years ago, Mike Wallace on 60 Minutes interviewed a survivor of Auschwitz named Yahiel Dinur. He was a principal witness in Adolf Eichmann's trial in 1961. Now, if you're following this, this trial, the Nurembergs, happened in the 1940s. This is in 1961. So what happened? Well, Eichmann escaped Germany after the war, and he hid out in uh, Argentina under the name of Ricardo Clement until the CIA's version, the America's version of the CIA in Israel called the Mossad, found him and then, you know, gently brought him back to Israel to be put on trial. While Wallace was interviewing Denur, they were showing film clips of the trial. And they're watching it together. And so you're watching 60 Minutes and you're watching them talking and you're watching them watch the film clips. And in one of the film clips, Denur and Eitman are staring at each other. Eichmann's in a bulletproof encasement that's clear and he's sitting in a chair and then Deneur's not but 10 feet away from him and their eyes are locked. And then on the the tape, uh, you watch Deneur lose it. He starts shaking and uncontrollably sobbing and, and he collapses and actually passes out. And Wallace goes, right there, right there. Why did you collapse and cry so violently? Was it fear? Was it the terrible memories of the past? Was it your bitter hatred for Eichmann? And Deneur said, "Uh, no. No, it was none of that. Uh, When I saw him, I saw myself. I realized that this man was just an ordinary man like me. And when I looked into his face after all those years, I realized that I'm just as capable of this kind of crime as he committed. Oh, he could have heard a pen drop on 60 Minutes. Nobody spoke. And when Wallace is signing off at the end of 60 Minutes, you know how they had that little sign-off deal at the end, Uh, he said, "Adolf Eichmann is in all of us. The Bible couldn't agree more. Please stand for the hearing of God's word.
1: Exodus twenty, three through five and seventeen, Romans seven, four, eight through eight one. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the spirit and not in the old way of the written code." The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it killed me. So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy, and righteous, and good. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good, in order that sin might be shown to be sin, and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now if I do do what I do not want, I agree with the law and that is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord, so then I myself, uh, I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, the Word of the Lord.
0: Thanks be to God. Uh, please be seated Dean, a great job reading that that is a. Tough, tough go. And just by introduction, we are no way going to solve all the mysteries of Romans seven. So don't even put that expectation on me. I shuck that expectation off. Uh, we will. I see Romans as the Mount Everest of the Bible, and uh, I think we'll, we'll tackle it one day. And uh, I've even tossed around the idea of possibly doing it next year, thinking about doing possibly Judges and then moving into Romans. So we'll see. We'll see what the Lord has for us. Um, let's pray. Oh Lord, we thank you that your word is living and it's active and it's sharper than a double-edged sword. We thank you, Jesus, that you're the lion of the tribe of Judah and you are the word of God and that you're an uncaged lion and that we ask now that you would unleash uh, the wonders of all that you've accomplished by the power of your spirit through a passage like this and we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. All right, some of you are still cringing at Mike Wallace's words. Adolf Eichmann is in all of us. Uh, I know that, and I know, I know that's a difficult thing to hear. I know that that's like, gosh, you don't hear that in church that much. Um, you probably uh, could see this as a very unhealthy thing to say, believe about yourself, and even live uh, your life that way, uh, that it could be emotionally and psychologically and, and uh, relationally and even spiritually damaging, uh, too detrimental uh, to a healthy self-image and too detrimental to living well because... You'd say, especially for Christians, because Christians are saints. Christians are holy. I mean, Christians are light in the darkness. It's too detrimental to hear that kind of stuff. I want you to please hear me. Yes, Christians are saints. And Christians are holy. And Christians are light in the darkness. And we will camp out on that next week. But please hear me again, what does it mean to be a saint? What does it mean to be holy? What does it mean to be a light in the darkness? I mean, does it mean, listen, we go from day to day and get better and better each day? Does it mean we go from strength to strength, obedience to obedience, light to light, victory to victory, that's what it means to be holy. That's what it means to be a saint. Does it mean that sin is always on a diminishing returns in our life? That sin is always shrinking day by day in your life? It's becoming less violent, less raw, less enslaving, less empowering. That we're actually sinning on a scale of calculations less and less each day. Is that what it means? Uh, Does it mean that sanctification is a work within our own power to achieve? And some do it and some don't. Case in point, all of us. Some of you are doing really well. Some of you are not doing so well. And the answer is, is because you've unleashed, you've you've done something in your sanctification that's different from somebody else. Is that what it means? Whatever it means to be a saint and whatever it means to be holy, whatever it means to be a light in the darkness, the greatest saint who ever lived, the most holiest man that ever walked this earth besides Jesus, the greatest light in the darkness outside of Jesus is saying in Romans 7, I am those things. I am the greatest. But I'm full of sin. He knew he was the greatest apostle. At the end of his life, he said, I'm the chief of sinners. Radical duality. This deep inner splitness in the human personality. Paul is saying in Romans seven that everyone including Christians are right now, verse 14 of chapter seven, sold under sin in some way. Do you see what's happening here 14 through 25? You have that text in in your bulletin. Those are all present tense verbs. That means they're happening right now. That means that while the apostle Paul, the great apostle Paul, all the realities of those verses right now are true of him as the great apostle. And so in 17, verse 17, he says, sin that dwells in me, that dwells in my flesh, and dwelling is important, because dwelling is talking about something taking root deep inside. It's something that makes its home in the heart, something that's deep in the center of your personality and your psyche and your whole being. Sin is an inside-out reality, not an outside-in reality. I mean, you can throw all the money you want at sin. It's never going to reach it. Never going to control it. It's never going to change it. You can change the situations and the circumstances in a person's life. You can throw education at them. You can throw refinement and civilization and culture and manners at them. The book of manners. You can throw that at them. Didn't work for me. Might work for you. But what's fascinating about the outside in reality instead of the inside out reality, all those outside in things that we just talked about money, good resources, a good family they don't reach sin. They don't change sin. They don't control sin. They actually reveal it. That's the playing field of sin. I mean, what happens when you put a group of good British boys clothed with civilization, the empire at that time, education, good families, economic and material comfort, and all the trappings of progress in human civilization, and you plane wreck them on a tropical island? What happens to them? Well, you get William Golding's Lord of the Flies. Now first, what do you get? Because they're good British subjects. You get an organized group of boys that will get together and they'll divvy out responsibilities and roles and they'll turn into an organized society while they await rescue. They'll take turns watching for the ship, take turns grabbing coconuts, take turns for whatever they need to do. But then as time marches on without rescue, what do you get? You get this savage impulses deep within the being that start rising to the surface. Uh, You get the veneer of civilization just melting away. You get thoughts and you get emotions and you get desires and you get words and you get actions completely centered on self. Saying stuff like, I must have this. This is what I crave and this is what I need and this is what I long for. It's my right. And I will not have that. And I will protect that at all costs. And as time goes on, you get the capability of great savagery. First, it's just a game. You go out and you play a game with a pig on the island. And then it becomes reality, real life. When you have this pudgy, bespeckled, asthmatic boy nicknamed, ironically, Piggy, who gets brutally murdered. Later, when the group is rescued, a shocked naval officer asks how such savagery could happen. In the book, he says, I should have thought that a pack of British boys, you are British boys, right? I would have thought that a pack of British boys would have, put, would have been able to put up a better show than that, end quote. Uh, William Golding was awarded the Nobel Peace Prize for Literature in 1983. The Swedish Academy said of his works, quote, they illuminate the human condition in the world today. Golding, when he was uh, said of his works, he said, listen, all my works, quote, are an attempt to trace the defects in society back to the defects in human nature, end quote. Paul couldn't have said it better himself. Sin dwells within me. Look at Romans 7, 18. Nothing good dwells in me that is in the flesh. There is a part of us that is completely and totally comprehensively evil, wicked, far more than you and I can ever even dream or imagine. In fact, when it comes out sometimes in our life, we are absolutely flabbergasted and in shock. And we create all these horrible defense mechanisms to keep from knowing how wicked we are that damages us psychologically, that damages our relationships, that leads to all kinds of breakdown in our life. Within us, there's this dark mass of self-absorption in which everything about us is centered on self and what self-thinks is life and what self-thinks is happiness and what self-thinks is identity and what self-thinks is God there is enough sin in just one of us if you took one of us let's take slim and we take slim and we put him in the world a beautiful world a sinless world a perfect world and we let him go he will destroy the world just like Adam Now, when we hear this, again, this is really, really shocking. It's shocking for me to say, but I want you to camp out on an application that we can all grab right now and at least hang on to something during this earthquake. Um, There's tons of humility here, and there's tons of compassion here in what we just looked at. Humility because we're all messed up. There's not anyone here that's not. And so right away, the playing field has been leveled, and right away, there's a deep sense of humility that can... Be real in your life, not just like, you know, the, the, the false humility kind. Oh, I'm just such a, no, I mean, really, you begin to see, gosh, this is what I'm like. Real, settled humility, not generated and worked up. real. But there's also deep, deep compassion because you know you're messed up. Everyone's messed up and only everyone's in need of the grace of God. Everyone's in need of God's mercy. In fact, one pastor, he was preaching on Romans 7. He says this, it makes everyone uncomfortable, but it's so true. He says, the only difference between you and a Nazi and Ted Bundy or a prostitute is that the seeds in your heart that make you capable of being and doing those things never got watered, so they never sprouted. Therefore, you have the freedom of finding common humanity with anybody. Humility we're all messed up. Compassion, we're all messed up. And we need the grace of God. Now, don't miss this. This is kind of where the whole passage is going and really where we're going. Whatever a saint is and whatever holy is, whatever being a light in darkness is, whatever emotional and spiritual and psychological and relational health is, whatever that is, it looks like the Apostle Paul in Romans 7. Holiness is Romans 7. Spiritual maturity is Romans 7. It looks like feeling deep in your bones that you really, really are a sinner. In other words, it looks like spiritual maturity and holiness, having an impact, a light in darkness. It looks like feeling deep, deep, deep down in your bones that you are sinful and weak. And that you embrace it. You face it. You actually submit to it. In fact, Barbara Dugan in Extravagant Grace says, you will never be able to find steady joy in this life until you do. She says, listen, if you want health, if you want peace and power in your life, you can't have it apart from submitting and understanding and embracing the fact that you're a sinner. So Romans 7 is the path actually to life. It's the path of peace. It's the path of having psychological, spiritual, relational, emotional health. And I can say this, I think um, that means that probably in our libraries, you can go through your library right now and throw 99.9% of your books away on holiness and spiritual growth. And if you don't have any, Paul just saved you a lot of money. Because I guarantee you, you go, you grab one of your books that's on your shelf about holiness and spiritual maturity and they will tell you to get out of Romans 7, not that Romans 7 is holiness. You have the greatest person that ever lives and he's telling you this is holiness. So how do you do this? I mean, how do you do the impossible? What's the impossible? The impossible, it's so impossible for us to face the fact that we're sinful. It's so impossible, again, that I've mentioned before We subconsciously and consciously generate all these really destructive psychological mechanisms, defense mechanisms to keep us from seeing it. So it's actually a a very, very difficult thing and impossible thing to be able to see rightly and assess yourself and say, gosh, this is what I'm like. For someone to actually get to the point and say, I really like this. You know, the handles Messiah should play. A spotlight should shoot on. It should be like the miracles of all miracles because no one feels that way and sees that way. To get to that point is a work of God. So how does that happen in your life? How? How do we embrace our sinfulness and our weakness? How do we experience the health, the joy of being a sinner? This is where the law comes in. For Paul in chapter 7, do you see it? The law is the tool to get you and I there. I mean, look at Romans 7, 7. What shall we say then? That the law is sin by no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would have known sin. Well, there it is. There's the answer. And do you see what he's saying? Notice what he's communicating here. If I had not been for the law, I wouldn't have known sin. And he's, he's saying it in a positive way. He's saying, this is good news it's good news that I now know that it, I'm a sinner. I wouldn't have known that I was a sinner except for the law made me know. It's a gift, he's saying. He's saying this with a twinkle in his eye. He's saying it with joy in his heart. It's like incompatible. How can you do that? That's like Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. It's split. That's weird. And for Paul, it was wholeness and it was health. It was life and it was peace. Peace. It was the stuff of living to be able to say that. I mean, how does the law do that though? How does the law come into our life and make us see we're sinful? How does the law actually do a good thing for us? Here's the answer. By the power of its fatal attraction. The law has a fatal attraction power to it. It's stated in 7.5. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work on our members to bear fruit for death. Do you see what's happening here? Our sinful passions aroused by the law. The law arouses our sinful passions. So sin is here. The law comes in and it's like this big, huge spiritual magnet. And all of a sudden, the sin starts rising and being attracted fatally to it, to the law. It's like sin is a fire and The law is gasoline on the fire. Keller says it this way, sin, the law is like a greenhouse effect on your sin. It's throwing fertilizer and sun and nutrients and water and it grows it. After stating it, he illustrates it. That's what all seven's about. First he states that it has this fatal attraction power and then he illustrates it and that's why you have that great section that Adina did such a good job in of saying, I do what I don't want to do. I mean, it's all illustrated there, right? Uh, here's what you need to see. There's two key ideas in that illustration of it. The law made Paul's sin real to him. Do you see that? The law did it. It was a tremendous, gracious tool and that it actually revealed it. It made it real to him. Look at verse nine. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. Now, what does that mean? Because Paul grew up with the law, He was a trained Israelite. And he was trained to be the best Israelite. He was trained to be great in the law. He actually says in other parts and other letters that he writes, he says, I was head and shoulders above everybody. I mean, tonight, you know, we, we love football and we compete in football. But Paul, he competed in the law and being better than everybody else. So, what does that mean, that he was once alive apart from the law? He was never alive apart from the law. He was told the law since he came into the world, and he was told it and instructed in it. He had the best teachers that ever were, he excelled in it above everybody of his peers. Well, I think this is what it means. There was a time when Paul thought he was a good person. And then one day, the law hit home. One day while he's walking around thinking he's a good person and he's walking around thinking that he's doing okay and he's walking around pretty secure in who he is and what he does, he's walking around being pretty successful as a human being. Comparatively speaking, to anybody else, one day he was alive apart from the law and then the commandment came alive. And then the law hit home and he died. My word. I'm a sinner. Now we know that was cosmically real for him on the road to Damascus when he was going to go slaughter some more Christians and Jesus showed up. But as a Christian for the rest of his life, that was a dynamic that was constantly going on with the law in his life. I mean, what do we got? Well, there's two things to see. When, you, when the law made Paul's sin real to him, it made Paul's sin real in two ways. Now, Keller's made him famous through the prodigal God, or the prodigal son, right? You got the older and the younger. But I want you to see that this is all the Bible. It's not just the, I mean, it's a great story. It's a great parable that Jesus tells to illustrate the two ways to live and then the third way not being either of the two ways, that both ways are lost ways. Well, all of Romans does that. Romans 1 through 3 is talking about the religious and the irreligious. He addresses both of them. And so even here, right here, Paul says sin is attracted to the law in two ways. It has a fatal attraction to it. It breaks it, and then it keeps it. So let's look at the break, verse 7 through 8. For I would not have known what it was to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet, but sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. So the opposite of to covet is to be content. So the 10th commandment showed him, I'm not content. Remember, there was a time when he was alive, he thought he was a good person, and all of a sudden he realized, I'm discontent. The 10th commandment showed him that beneath the surface of his life that seemed to be together, and he seemed to be calm and cool, and people were laying their cloaks down at him while they stoned Stephen. Underneath in his heart, there was a storm raging. The psalmist says, listen, I learned to calm the storm in my soul, like a weaned child on his mother. What does an unweaned child look like on his mother? Wretching, thrashing, noisy, storm trying to get fed. And he realized. His soul was a storm of desires and a storm of mega wants and storm of we cannot have this and he was after a lot of things. In other words, the 10th commandment showed him he was breaking the first and second commandment, that he had all kinds of gods, all kinds of idols in his life. All kinds of things that he looked to to give, only God could give. <clears throat> so Paul saw himself as a lawbreaker. Now I know I'm a coveter. So remember, I mean, when you got the Ten Commandments, which we've been doing this series on, they're not given to prevent sin. They're given to reveal sin. So when you come to the commandment and it says, uh, you shall not murder, the point is, you are a murderer. Don't do it. You shall not commit adultery. You are an adulterer. Don't do it. You shall not lie. You are a liar. Don't do it. So Paul (coughs) sees himself as a lawbreaker. Now, what about law keeping? Well, it's kind of the backdrop of this whole thing, remember? He's doing very successfully at keeping the law. I mean, what was he like when he functionally didn't experience the fact that he was a sinner? What was he like? Man, he had that law down. And remember, we got the Ten Commandments here. The group that he was a part of called the Pharisees had 540 plus laws added to the Ten. If you were called to fast one day a week, those guys were fasting three days a week or three times a day. If you were called to give 10%, they were given 20, 30, 40% of their tithes and offerings to the Lord. They were keeping the law. And what he's saying and what is said about this, he was keeping the law, but he was keeping the law for all the wrong reasons. He was keeping the law in order to connect with God. He was keeping the law in order to find God's blessing. See how selfish it is? He was keeping the law an attempt to establish his own righteousness, to generate his own worth and value, to find love. Now we talked about last week that you have the big L laws of the Ten Commandments, then you have the spiritualized version, then you have the little L laws. We try to keep those laws, thinking they're going to give us life and happiness and identity. The law of thinness, the law of achievement, We follow those just as religiously as if we did the Ten Commandments. And Paul is saying, I was using the law to save myself, to feel good about myself before God. So the law is fatally attractive. What the law does is it breaks, sin breaks the law by trying to find salvation, trying to find contentment in things other than God. And then what sin does is it keeps the law to try to find salvation. It tries to work and generate its own life and its own salvation, okay? All right, let's end this way. What breaks this fatal attraction? What breaks it? If you want to see that the first part, there's a two-part answer. The first part is so crucial to understanding holiness and so crucial to spiritual maturity. We've got to get it. In fact, the whole Romans 7 is moving to this verse. It's all moving to verse 24. The first part of the cruciality of holiness is realizing that the law does it. The law actually breaks its own attraction. The law, as Paul says, makes sin come alive. It reveals that he's a lawbreaker, reveals that he's a lawkeeper. The law makes you embrace your sin. In other words, the law, as Calvin said, is a mirror, and it actually shows us what we're really like. Oh, my word, I break the law. I'm trying to keep it to establish my righteousness. The law breaks the attraction. So here's the application. Don't despise the dirty work of the law. Submit to it. Embrace it. That the law is doing a good work. It's actually giving you and making you an experiential sinner. It's actually taking you to verse 24, which is the application of the whole thing. Wretched man and I am. Can we, can you and I genuinely say that with a twinkle in your eye? I mean it. No qualms, no buts, no ands. Wretched man that I am. This is spiritual health right there for Paul. Now, the second thing is the better attraction. Look at verse 24 and 25. Who will deliver me from this body of death? I mean, here it is. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. I mean, listen to the life in here. Listen to the joy in here, the power in here. Who will deliver me? And he says, not me who will rescue me? I can't. Who will justify me? Who will sanctify me? Not me. I can't be my own savior. Do you hear the power in that? Do you hear the freedom in that? Not me. Thanks be to God. To Jesus Christ, my Lord. The law leads Paul and leads all of us to verse 24. That's the whole flow of Romans seven. It can't wait to get you to 24, but it's gonna take a while to let the law do its work. So that when the law does its work, if the law properly does its work in our life, we get to verse 24 and we get there triumphantly. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me, not me? Thank God for Jesus. And your roots of faith go deeper into Jesus. (coughs) Your joy goes deeper into Jesus. If decreasing the total number of sins was God's primary objective in our life, he would have kept Israel out of the wilderness. He would never have given the Ten Commandments. If the goal of God's people is to sin less, God would never have taken them into the wilderness because when they got to the wilderness, what happened? Sin multiplied They've never gotten the 10 commandments, sin multiplied. And so what we have is that the law leads us to a savior in real time, not just a theoretical savior, but a real savior. You start taking your specific sins and you start realizing he bore these sins for me right now in real time. And then you start looking at the fact he's my savior. He actually lived the only righteous life on earth for me in real time. In other words, he's my righteousness. So you go to the law and you say, Oh my Lord, Jesus, you never committed adultery for me. You never lied for me. You never hated anybody for me. You never looked condescendingly down on anybody for me. You never misused food for me. You never abused your calling and your career for your reputation for me. You weren't addicted to people's approval for me. And all of a sudden, he's your savior. Thanks be to God. Not a theoretical savior. Your savior. In real time. We'll talk about this next week, the practicality of this, but I want to give you a highlight. Jesus actually addresses the need that you and I sinfully go after in other places. That's another way that this thank be to God functionally, practically works. In other words, the reason why we sin is that we think there's something that's going to meet our need. And Jesus addresses the need that we sinfully try to address. And so if he addresses the need... The gospel actually now becomes the functional way that you change in real life with whatever sin you're wrestling with. <coughs> so certainly it cancels debts and it pays debts, which we just talked about, and it's an objective righteousness, but now it's also the means of motivating in a holy life. And we'll talk about that next week. All right, Barbara dugut says it this way. It's good for us to see our sin because when we do, our Savior becomes dearer to us. When we are standing tall and strong, we do not tend to look at Christ. We don't need him. But when we fall flat on our faces, overcome with sin and weakness, there is nowhere else to look but to the one who died our death and the one who lived our life for us. God loves broken and contrite hearts. We don't acquire those by living the victorious Christian life, end quote. That's God's goal in this whole passage, is to make you an experiential sinner. And he loves you and me so much he gave the law to do it through the law you begin to say and i begin to say with a twinkle in our eye wretched man that i am who will deliver me from this body of death not me because as you now go to him god's goal is he gets bigger god's goal is jesus gets brighter God's goal is that you worship him more, not yourselves. It's now about his performance, not your performance. You now are clinging to him with deeper joy and deeper freedom and deeper life because it's always about Jesus. Let's pray. Father, as we affirmed in our affirmation of faith earlier today, Lord, that you would reveal to us our sin and reveal to us uh, how you meet that, uh, that sin. And so, Lord, may we proclaim with Paul, oh, wretched man or woman that I am, uh, to see the filth, but then to see uh, the hope that is in the, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Uh, thanks be to God for what he's done, that finished work. And, Lord, we pray that we would be able to continue seeing that work uh, Needed deeper and deeper into our hearts as we come to your table now. And so, Lord, I ask that you would bless these uh, elements for the table, but also our tithes and offerings. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. And as we